We've been talking about uh, the shootings in New Zealand, the aftermath of those shootings. And joining me now uh, to talk a bit more about this is Jasmine Zine, a professor of sociology, religion, culture, uh, Muslim studies at uh, the Sir Wilfrid Laurier University. Thank you so much for being with us and spending some time with us this morning. My pleasure. Uh, there, there are a lot of questions about this in that um, some people have read the manifesto that was sent out uh, by the, the, the suspect in this case. Um, others questioning, how could this happen? What would lead to something like this happening? What is your take on that? Well, I would say that, you know, as, as tragic and horrific um, as this incident is, uh, these kinds of acts of Islamophobic violence are no longer necessarily that surprising when you have a sense of the kind of very, uh, you know, poisonous ideologies that are out there, the very xenophobic, Islamophobic, anti-immigrant kinds of rhetoric that's being purveyed through various channels um, and being consumed by more and more, uh, you know, people who are aligning themselves with uh, white supremacist, white nationalist groups. Uh, and other forms of ethno-nationalism that exist, you know, globally uh, in the world today. I mean, Islamophobia isn't just confined to Western nations. We see the, uh, you know, the genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in Burma. We see the persecution of the um, Chinese Uyghur Muslims. Uh, You know, we have uh, many, many examples globally of Islamophobia. So it isn't just a problem in the West. But when we do look at the iteration of Islamophobia in Western nations, uh, we can definitely see this uh, white supremacy and white nationalism at the core um, as what we've seen in the case, uh, you know, the tragic case in New Zealand as well. So it's not a surprise. and It's a tragedy, but not a surprise. And that's what we were hearing as well from a lot of Muslim leaders yesterday, too, was saying exactly that, that it, that of all of the reactions, the surprise was not one of them, uh, which sounds, I mean, it sounds horrific. What, how much danger or how much damage is done when, as you mentioned, we have this, this, this happening around the world? And the president of the United States yesterday, when asked about this, said he didn't think that white nationalism was increasing or that it was becoming more of an issue. Right. I mean, I think he's, you know, covering his own complicity in purveying a lot of the kinds of ideologies that have inspired. I mean, he's noted in the manifesto of, um, you know, of this particular uh, shooter, as well as uh, here in Canada, um, Alexander Bissonnette's was also connected to the uh, uh, New Zealand shooting as well, having his name on one of the guns that was used. So uh, I think that, you know, this this uh, attempt to create a space of innocence for uh, the rhetoric and policies of states, which are also purveying Islamophobia, is is very problematic, and uh, you know, and is part of the problem. So clearly, the policies and rhetoric of uh, politicians like Donald Trump. Uh, we can't also claim any Canadian exceptionalism. We certainly have politicians in this country, uh, you know, like Andrew Scheer, uh, Jason Kenney, um, Stephen Harper, Maxime Bernier, many others who are also promoting, in a way, uh, you know, the same types of ideologies uh, that are uh, xenophobic in nature, many that target specifically Muslims, and uh, but do it in a kind of liberal washing where they are put, uh, putting these same ideas out there that many of the white nationalists uh, have, but they are um, 
uh, guising them in a particular kind of liberal rhetoric um, that is uh, trying to be a little more palatable and in that way is a lot more insidious as well. So we're not immune from those kinds of discourses and ideologies uh, here in Canada or policies for that matter. You know, we have a um, policies like uh, security certificates that, you know, have been really uh, uh, put against Muslim men who were non-citizens in this country and held on secret trials and evidence. We have the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act that, you know, tends to signal out uh, practices that people often misassociate with Muslim cultures. Um, so there's many, many ways that, you know, the Canadian um, uh, policies and government and politicians have been complicit in uh, producing Islamophobia, and we see this writ large in a global context. So I think that if anything comes from this tragedy, it is the fact that we can no longer uh, try and say that Islamophobia doesn't exist. We've had our own issue here in Canada with the Quebec massacre two years ago, and in the aftermath of that, there was an awful, there was a lot of backlash, um, you know, from various uh, alt-right groups who, uh, and white supremacist groups in Canada, who now we're hearing are in, you know, in 2015, uh, Barbara Perry, who does work on hate groups, reported that there were about 100, and now uh, she's looking at the situation and is saying there's over 300 of these groups in Canada. So we, you know, saw in the aftermath of the Quebec massacre quite a lot of backlash um, there as well against uh, Muslims and an, an attack against, um, you know, um, policies in this country that uh, were trying to, or, for example, Motion 103 that was trying to uh, look at Islamophobia in Canada, document it, and develop national strategies to address it, as well as systemic racism and religious discrimination. And, you know, those were also... Uh, widely uh, critiqued, and there was a, a great deal of racist Islamophobic backlash against Ikra Khalid, who put forward that motion. So uh, I think that Canada cannot um, hide from the implications of Islamophobia and the ways that um, it's also perpetuated in our society. We've seen it with the massacre here. And I think that we're only going to see, sadly, more incidents like this happening until security communities begin to start to look at radicalization as it exists among uh, white nationalists and start to code this and talk about this as radicalization and terrorism. And how do we get to that point? You mentioned that we've gone from about 100 hate groups to 300. How do we even get to that point and now deal with that? Well, I think that, you know, when you do have, uh, you know, ideologues like, like uh, that are able to purvey their messages through the Internet, you now have politicians who have become quite successful uh, based on having far-right uh, kinds of uh, platforms. You know, you can uh, build walls and ban people from coming into your countries, and you can set up internment camps, and you can uh, commit genocide, and, uh, you know, and uh, all of these kinds of things are happening globally. And in many ways, the views that are being authorized are now allowing these groups to come out of the shadows of the Internet chat rooms and enter the public sphere uh, in ways that, you know, we didn't quite see before. And so I think that that has allowed for the proliferation of these groups uh, out there. And there are actually industries behind Islamophobia, behind, uh, you know, promoting this particular kind of hate. Those industries have been well documented in the United States, and I recently received a grant from the uh, Social Sciences and Research Humanity Council, um, and I'm working with the National Council of Canadian Muslims to map the Canadian Islamophobia industry. 
and look at where the spheres of influence are, who are part of this constellation of individuals, politicians, you know, alt-right groups, think tanks that are, um, you know, forming this network and that are purveying ideas that uh, are becoming, um, you know, uh, fodder for a lot of these kinds of actions and are really trying to, um, you know, foment uh, a type of hate that is often, again, liberally washed and guised in other ways, but it comes out in the same uh, kind of equation where it's very, uh, you know, about it's guised under promoting Canadian values or preserving a particular way of life. And, uh, you know, these types of ideas as well are ones that are designed to, uh, you know, make scapegoats out of uh, immigrants, refugees, uh, you know, anyone other than the old stock Canadians as being uh, the repository for all social ills and problems. And so, um, as these kinds of views are authorized and are made are more normalized, then we definitely see more people you know who are gravitating toward these kinds of ideas and taking them up in often deadly ways as we 've seen all right uh, we have to leave it there we 're out of time, uh, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us th- today. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Well, this is something that a lot of parents take a look at. And the Fraser Institute has released its annual rankings of BC elementary schools. It takes a look at 955 public and independent elementary schools uh, based on 10 academic indicators. And these all come from the Foundation Skills Assessment Tests. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about the results this year is Peter Cowley. Uh, Peter Cowley is a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute's School Performance Studies. Peter, thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Uh, Where have we seen movement as far as schools in the rankings? What sticks out uh, for you in uh, this year's results? Well, let's start out by saying that that, uh, the report cards that we do, the rankings that we do, are intended to answer just one question. And that is, in general, how does an individual school do compared to all the other 954 schools in the list? So what we're not so much looking for is sort of general trends with regard to how the British Columbia school system is doing, but more specifically, and this is this is uh, what parents are, I think, most interested in, how their school is doing. But when we look at the averages for all 955 schools, we see we, we can see some trends over the last five years. Uh, what we saw, for instance, was that in, in the grade seven reading test, there has been a slow but statistically significant improvement decline in the results since 2013-2014. Further, we see that more uh, of the tests are uh, assessed as being below the provincial standard over that five-year period. And finally, uh, and this is probably the most unfortunate one, uh, the percentage of the tests that were not written for whatever reason uh, has been going up in a statistically significant way over those same years. Uh, and, of course, I, I say this is an important one because there's tremendous value in having the tests written. You know, the, the provincial government mandates these tests for um, all students in grade four and in grade seven, with very few exceptions. And, and there are certainly good reasons for parents to ensure that their kids take them. Um, the first one being that uh, taking the FSA tests and, and, and uh, by the kids 
The parents then get the results to show in general how their student is performing, both in terms of uh, in an absolute sense, but also compared to other other uh, students in the in the school district or across the province. That's an important thing for parents to know, I think. And and just as importantly, uh, when we look at results with regard to how individual schools are doing compared to others, then there's a there's a a, a, a magic that can happen that's called comparison, and we can we can look at how a particular school is doing and compare it. Uh, both to the schools in the nearby area or to schools that are serving similar populations of students or, or the schools that are uh, way far away. And we would want to um, uh, do these kind of comparisons for really one reason, and that's to encourage and assist in improvement across the province. You know? So there, there, are, there, are, there are lots of good stories in the report. Probably the the most important good story is that we still have these data uh, to to work with. Uh, the British Columbia Ministry of Education instituted these foundation skills assessments just back in the early or the last days of the last century, in the late 1990s, uh, and it uh, it continues to this day. So along with Ontario and Alberta. These three uh, provinces have had a, a consistent and, and I think, very, very important measuring system in place. Is there a concern, though, as you said, if the number or the percentage of tests not being taken is rising, is there a concern that it's more difficult then to get a clear picture from those results? Well, certainly not. Uh, it, it is rising, and that's uh, in part to do with the efforts over the last 20 years of the teachers' union to convince everybody that they're not a good thing to do. But in fact, as I said, uh, the, the number of tests that were, written, uh, that were not written has been rising, but it's still relatively small. Overall, we have fewer than 25% of the, of the tests that should have been written not being written. So, you know, if you take, for instance, um, grade four numeracy, 77% of all the tests that should have been written were across the province. So it, it's a healthy regime. Uh, having said that, uh, the Ministry of Education makes it clear that as far as they're concerned, it's mandatory for all kids to take the tests with, as I say, very few exceptions. For instance, if, if a, a student is, is, is seriously ill or has a, a, a family emergency, then they can be excused from the tests. Uh, if in other cases there are kids who who simply would not who have, have for instance special needs that cannot be accommodated and and so as a result they couldn't uh, um, properly uh, write the test then then they're excluded too but those uh, um, those three categories of students who are intended not to take the test are very small much 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 smaller than than the uh, total number that aren't written so um, I would encourage uh, as I say, I would encourage parents and, and uh, principals to to get behind the ministry on this one and say, let's see if we can't ensure that the, the maximum amount possible of students across the province uh, write the test. 
All right. Well, one of the uh, the schools that's highlighted in the rankings uh, that have just come out is Armstrong Elementary. That it's the fastest improving school, and quite a jump. I think the score of one point nine out of ten. It's risen to six point one. Uh, does the does it look at why perhaps that has happened, or what what's caused them to to rise and to have the better result, or is it more of the numbers are out there uh, and and they can figure out what it was or or learn from that? Well, you're right and you're wrong. Uh, it's true that the report card only reports. Our rankings show that schools like Armstrong, over a period of years, in this case from 2014-15 as the base um, up to now, have shown statistically significant improvement. That, And that means, uh, from a statistical point of view, it, it is not likely that these results um, come about uh, solely as fluctuation from year to year. These are something is happening in in the schools that we show improvement in, uh, but we don't know what. But it is extraordinarily important to find out. So take Armstrong. Uh, you know, if you if you have a school, and sometimes you would say, well, this isn't a school we might have expected from the point of view that you know it's it's not in a high performance area. Uh, like West Vancouver, um, and uh, uh, there was no particular reason to expect Armstrong to be uh, fast-moving forward in terms of improvement, but yet it has. And as you said, it's, it's particularly good improvement when you think that year after year after year since, um, I'm sorry, I think I said 2014-15, it's, we start at 2013-14, they had 1.9 in that school year. It improved to 3.6 in the following year, then 4, then 5.5, then 6.1. Every single year they found a better way uh, to ensure the success of the class uh, compared to previous ones. Now, the question that you ask, the why, is really the important one because what happens if if, uh, the Ministry of Education and the school board involved in uh, and Armstrong get together with the people at the school and say, let's let's focus in on what you've done over that period. What have you maybe changed? Maybe you had an improvement program with a bunch of uh, with a number of different aspects, and these are the results. But let's see if we can find uh, find out why this has happened in specific terms, so that we can share that information with other less successful schools. And that surely is 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 what can come from this analysis because we find that there are uh, improving schools pretty much in every part of the uh, province. There are schools that start like Armstrong way down in the rankings and move up from there and other schools that were doing quite well in the rankings, but moved even further up over the same period. Uh, And you will see public schools, of course, and independent schools, schools, as I say, from around the province, and even some schools with relatively high percentages of special needs kids or, or ESL kids. For instance, there are two schools that I just looked at, um, Shaughnessy in Vancouver and Kingswood in Richmond, which have shown statistically significant improvement, even though they have around around a third of their kids are ESL. So so this, this improvement result is, is one that I mean, if I if the minister were uh, of education were to call me this afternoon and say, Peter, in your view, what would be the most important thing that my folk can do on Monday? It would be 
from me, my response would be ensure that you know who these improving schools are and then establish a plan to, to get to every one of them and say, what did you do to improve? Now, not all of them are going to know. And in fact, there may be other uh, reasons reasons in some schools for the improvement that has really nothing to do with what the school was doing. But within those uh, um, 50-odd schools, 53 of them actually, that improved, there may be answers. And those answers may benefit just way more than just a few hundred schools, uh, students at that school. It may benefit kids across the province. All right. Just one other question. And you mentioned uh, the the Teachers Federation. Uh, They tweeted about this uh, when the results came out. Uh, The tweet says, enough with these ridiculous rankings. It's the same story every year from an organization that has nothing to do with education. Uh, I'm going to make the leap there and say the same story they're referring to is the fact that uh, independent and private schools always come out on top with the top marks. Uh, How do you respond to that? Well, first off, there are 955 stories in this ranking. It's not just one. Uh, We put independent and private schools together in this ranking for a very important purpose, which is that there are parents who are interested in the results in private schools. There are also parents, I should say, who are interested in comparing the results between private schools and public schools. This is is a, a tool for parents to use. It's also a tool for for educators to use. For instance, in the Fraser Institute report released not long ago, it showed that if you, if you, if you forget about it, um, uh, what we would call elite private schools, very expensive private schools, very high performing, but very, you know, beyond perhaps the means of, of, of most people, you're left with the much larger uh, population of private schools, which really um, are possibly within the range of an enormous, enormously greater uh, group of families. But the interesting is the thing about it is that they perform, those, those non-elite private schools perform on average much better than the public schools do. And the, the Fraser Institute report showed that there were no differences uh, or no significant difference, differences in the level of family income of the kids going to those schools versus the public ones. Most of the schools I'm talking about, the non-elite ones, are operated by churches. And you can see uh, all the way across the province, you can see if you compare, for instance, the Catholic schools, elementary schools, to the public ones, even though they may not have much of a difference in terms of the uh, financial assets of the of the public schools, uh, or sorry, of the parents, uh, that uh, continuously the, the, the Catholic schools do better. So uh, the the phrase the um, teachers institute is wrong to say that this is one old story and that this doesn't mean anything. And I challenge them, as I have over the last twenty years, to debate this in public with me any time they want. There are important things in here that are not available anywhere else. And when I say here, I mean not not just in the rankings by the Fraser Institute. But in the in the foundation skills assessment process, which the teachers union has been against since before it even began, but they have no other answer to the question. Well, how do we know where success is in terms of schools in this case 
and and how do we ever find out what those successful schools are doing if we're not even measuring? All right, uh, Peter, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. You're welcome, Jill. Thank you. Well, I saw this story in the Star Vancouver and thought it was definitely worthy of more conversation and looking into it. And it is about an organization in Vancouver, uh, the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter, saying that it will turn down funding from the city of Vancouver rather than change its policy. And it's a policy that excludes some people from many of its services, speaking specifically about trans people. And this has always been the policy of Rape Relief and Women's Shelter in Vancouver. But to, to talk a bit more about this and why it was at City Hall, we are joined now by Vancouver Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young on the line. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, how did this all come about as far as the discussion about funding uh, Vancouver Rape Relief, something that uh, Vancouver Council has done for many years? Uh, well, the City of Vancouver, um, on an annual basis, awards a number of social policy grants. And this was the time of year when Council received that report. Um, and it includes funding for a great number of organizations across the city, and Rape Relief was one of the ones that staff had recommended an award for for its public education and outreach program. And what is the issue that you and some of the other councillors have with giving this funding to Vancouver Rape Relief? I think the challenge uh, was, and it became clear from a lot of the correspondence that we received from members of the public and from members of the public that came to speak at council was that rape relief and first of all I want to say they're a fantastic organization they do a lot of work and and they've helped a lot of women um, in crisis over the years Um, but it became clear that rape relief has a number of services that they provide um, such as peer counseling uh, accompaniment to medical exams and so on Um, but they were choosing not to provide those services to all people who identify as women and so specifically, for example, would not um, provide counseling services or some of those components to trans women, um, instead choosing to um, not do that or to refer them to, try to refer them somewhere else. And from what I understand, though, they do provide that, uh, say, over the phone. They do provide those services in that way. The policy, though, stops anybody who is trans or non-binary or who identifies as a woman who wasn't born a woman uh, would stop them from physically coming into the premises. Yeah, I, I think that there was, there was a lot of dialogue about, and a lot of discussion about that. Um, but it became quite clear, I think, to counsel that the service was pretty limited and, it, um, and often was just simply a referral that they wouldn't engage in sort of peer counseling or some of that critical support. Um, and I think the challenge for city council, you know, when we have policies that relate to diversity and inclusion, and they're not just, it's not just a slogan and it's not just a bumper sticker, is that people who were in desperate need of help and who are typically discriminated against were being turned away at a time that was a really critical for them. Um, and that was something, given the fact that the city of Vancouver does have a policy um, about ensuring that we're welcoming to all persons, um, that council did not feel that great relief was meeting that policy. And it becomes a bit complicated, or it's a difficult one, because you're right, and I think everybody would agree, nobody should be turned away in that time in that when they need help, no matter what's happened. There's been some trauma if you need help from an organization like this that's been providing help for years. But it doesn't seem like a lot of the conversation is also about, about women who have been raped. And if a woman has been raped or sexually assaulted in any way, it's the idea that she should be able to go to a place and be in a safe place where she knows 
Uh, there is not somebody there who is a man, was a man, is a man identifying as a woman, uh, because for a lot of women, that would be really traumatic too. Well, 100%. I mean, people are not disputing sort of the sensitivity of the service and how rape relief has delivered that. I think the challenge is that, you know, council was, was really cognizant of how important these services are um, and wanted to provide some time to have that conversation about how they could be delivered or evolve those services. And that's why council approved their funding for 2019. We didn't want to sort of pull the rug out for that. Um, and we wanted to ensure um, that they continue to get that for 2019. And that enables time to have a conversation about how they could provide some core services to all people that need it, as opposed to just cutting that funding off. We didn't think that that was the way to go. Um, and that was equitable. But I just do want to stress that they are receiving the funding for 2019. And we're hopeful that we can have a conversation about how they could be more inclusive moving forward if the city of Vancouver chooses to fund them. And did you get that sense from the organization saying that they that they might be open to the idea of, of perhaps changing policy or or, or um, adapting policy to fall under uh, to fall under the rules? Uh, I didn't, um, unfortunately. Um, I'm really hopeful in these cases that these are actually opportunities for different for parties to come together and have those kind of conversations. Um, rape relief seems quite committed to the model that they have currently, so I didn't get that feeling. Um, they've also rallied um, in terms of having folks send a number of letters. I think what's been really distressing um, around this discourse and since the council took this decision is the the vitriol um, and the hate type of language that's been contained in letters that I've received at council and the backlash on social media. And, and that's really disappointing and unsettling to see that. When the this conversation is actually about ensuring how you support people um, that are the most vulnerable in our society and people that are in times of crisis. So the fact that that's the tone of the conversation we're having is it's unsettling and it's really disappointing. Yeah, definitely. But and when you say you're getting email, uh, hateful email, is it hateful um, against the council or against rape relief? Uh, it's, it's to the council. Um, it's, uh, I've received some personal uh, emails and communication that are you know, sort of using profanity and some um, negative comments uh, that I, I don't think I would write to the member elected official ever if I was a member of the public. Um, it's just not the way that we want to have that conversation happen and some pretty negative backlash on social media um, against against me and against members of, against the decision. Um, I'm not sure that people understand as well that this was a decision that was taken by a resounding majority at council across all party lines. So this was a statement that council made and felt very strongly about. This is not about one person, but at the end of the day, <coughs> excuse me, and it has been pretty upsetting to sort of see the, the tone of the hate email. If that is a portion of what people in the trans community have to experience for discrimination on a, on a regular basis, and even to experience a small element of that, um, I think that's exactly the dialogue that we're trying to have. And you mentioned the law as well, and it's a it's a BC law as well as a federal law as far as uh, you can't discriminate against somebody based on gender gender identity or gender expression. Uh, do you think though there is this bigger conversation that maybe that's that's too broad of uh, a description or too broad of a definition? In that clearly, that here's this group, and, and and I think we can all agree this is a group that that does very important work. Uh, they're taking a stand. They're they're saying they're doing this to protect women. Uh, does there need to be a discussion? 
question, maybe maybe there needs to be something, a, a solution that that isn't in front of us right now. I, I think that we're these are. The, I think we have to have these kind of conversations. I think they're tough and I think they're difficult sometimes. But I was really struck by the irony that I attended um, a service last night, uh, a vigil with a community recognition of the forty nine victims uh, of Islamophobia that lost their lives in New Zealand. And the entire community turned out to support that, people from all faiths and all backgrounds. And the fact that we're seeing this level of intolerance and hate discussion happening at the same time that we have that level of tragedy is mind-boggling. It's so not okay. So there's a way to have these conversations. I think we should constructively have these conversations, but this way is not it. All right. We will uh, leave it there. But again, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this. Uh, you're right. In light of everything that's happening, uh, it's very important uh, to have the conversations. Uh, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, in Ottawa, there is the Gotta Go Project, and it's all about getting more public toilets that are accessible to people in public spaces. Uh, That was mentioned in Michael Geller's latest column in the Vancouver Courier. Yes, Michael Geller, a planner, architect, but in this scenario, uh, talking about the need for more public toilets. And he joins us on the line now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, So we can add toilet activist to your title. (laughs) Well, if I can encourage others to become toilet activists in Vancouver, then I'll feel that it was worth uh, writing the column. Uh, And I saw the column, I saw you tweet about this and uh, tweeted back as well, because I think it is, and you mentioned this as well, it's something perhaps we don't talk about a lot. Uh, It's talking about a very private thing that people want to do in a public space, albeit a private space in public. Uh, But what kind of started you uh, down the path of writing about this and sparked uh, the the desire to write about this uh, in the paper? It was a particularly bad stairwell in the Gastown Parkade, which is actually owned by the city of Vancouver and managed by Easy Park. And I think those of us who walk around the downtown, walking down Granville Mall, and certainly if you ever venture into the alleys and uh, back lanes in the downtown, you often come across uh, the smells of people's uh, urine and and, and worse. And, uh, but the trouble is we're starting to take it for granted. But this toilet was, this stairwell was so bad. In fact, I said it's like a public toilet. And uh, so I tweeted out to Easy Park to see if somebody would come and uh, wash it down. And sadly, uh, they didn't respond. So, you know, they say the power of the pen. I decided I would write about it. And then purely by chance that evening, I happened to hear on CBC radio, on ideas, a uh, documentary about public toilets. And when the two things happened on the same day, I decided to, uh, to pursue it. And there certainly are other uh, cities. And you reference uh, the Gotta Go campaign in Ottawa. There's a huge campaign in Portland, Oregon, about uh, having public uh, toilets. Uh, people even mentioning that I was going to be talking about to this with you today. I've had people emailing me all saying the same thing, that there is a lack of public toilets uh, in Metro Vancouver. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Some of us are very fortunate. Uh, If I need to go to the toilet and I'm downtown, I can generally go into a hotel or I can go into a restaurant or bar. And if I don't want to buy anything, I usually ask them politely. And I'm an old man and they understand that uh, I have these needs. But for people who are homeless and other disadvantaged people, they can't just wander into the Pan Pacific Hotel. And uh, this is Homeless Week, Homeless Count Week. 
And uh, I mean, the, the, the reality is that it's a terrible situation we have in Vancouver, people sleeping outside. I think it must be even worse not to be able to access toilets. But it's not just the homeless and disadvantaged. It's, you know, when tourists come to the cities and others. And those of us who travel, we know that in Europe, uh, there are far more public toilets. Yes, sometimes you pay for them, but at least they're available. And I think, uh, to be fair, Vancouver has started the Downtown Business Improvement Association, has a map of public toilets, but they're very few and far between. And uh, I guess... Hopefully, this will start a conversation, and ultimately, others will hear us and say, you know, they're, they're right. We should uh, install more. Some could be free. Some could be paid toilets. Uh, the homeless, we could give them tokens or whatever to, to help those people. And I think it's it's interesting, too. I mean, there are a couple of the self-cleaning the toilets uh, that are even just downstairs outside uh, of Pacific Center uh, that people can use. Uh, I, I do think it's probably a bigger issue, though, when you talk about the stairwells. And I tweeted this back at you, too, and that working strange hours, I see this happen. And it seems like it's it's accessibility, it's ease. I mean, it's men doing it, let's be honest. It's not always homeless men. Uh, It's men, I've called them out on it before and you just kind of get this blank stare like, who are you? I can do this. There's a stairwell. Why couldn't I do this? I think getting, getting that problem fixed, it wouldn't just be fixed if there was access to toilets. I think that's right. Now, some people have said, look, some of the people who are using the stairwells, they're so uh, drugged or they're so uh, drunk that they just don't care. They got to go. They wouldn't even use a public toilet if it was available. Well, that may be true in some cases, but certainly I think that's more of a minority. Uh, I just think we do need to start installing more of these uh, facilities, and they don't have to be these, you know, shiny uh, uh, <laughs> metal boxes. Those are very nice. But just simply thinking about, as as your previous caller said, when we build transit systems. Let's add more public toilets and transit. I used to have my office in the CP station. Believe it or not, people would come up to my office on the third floor and ask, could they use the toilet? Because there were no public toilets in the CP station. I mean, when you think about it, it's wrong. And I guess too, then it, it goes to the, the question of cost as well. We mentioned TransLink, and TransLink is actually looking at this for in the future to put washrooms, public toilets in the stations. Uh, I think the, the reluctance in part of that has always been it's a costly thing to do. You would then have the maintenance that you have to make sure they're maintained because I think the only thing worse perhaps in a public toilet is a public toilet that's in a disgusting state. Um, and it is a cost. And then would people be willing to pay more for transit or to be willing to pay for these, these facilities? Well, I think people pay for these facilities all over the world. Um, I mean, you go through Europe, it's not uncommon now. I mean, in some instances, you pay uh, 20 cents. In some instances, you pay one euro. And now some people would say you're paying one euro just to go to the toilet. Well, sometimes you're happy to pay one, one euro. I'm going to post some photographs after this discussion on my blog. When I was in Moscow in September, I saw a sign that talked about historic uh, toilet. It's in the old uh, government department store on Red Square, and it was the equivalent of $3. I thought, $3 to use a public toilet? Wow, it must be special. So I did, in fact, pay the $3. And, I mean, it was magnificent. It was a beautiful old marble inlaid uh, toilet. Um, But, yes, I think people would pay because they, in fact, will go and pay uh, $3 to buy a coffee just to use the toilet in some cafes. But the other side of it is, I think it's part of a civic society. 
I mean, Vancouver is a wonderful city in which to live. We're very proud of the fact that we're creating uh, public places, open spaces. We're trying to think about the needs of people. And uh, I just hope we can now start to focus a little more attention on this. It would uh, certainly, uh, I think, be very welcome to a lot of people. And again, if uh, the reaction that I've gotten just this morning is any indication. Um, on that note, I look forward to seeing the photos uh, from Moscow. And uh, just before you go, how has the reaction been since you wrote the column? Oh, I, well, no one has disagreed with me. I mean, the only comment, which I would say was a negative comment, was the suggestion that some people won't use toilets even if you provide them. But uh, that's like saying, you know, people will still sleep out on the streets, even if you provide them with a modular housing unit. Um, sure, there may be some who are uncomfortable, but the majority by far would welcome uh, uh, that accommodation and I think would welcome public toilets. And as I say, I think some could be free, some you could charge. Maybe we even go back to the, to the situation that I found in uh, Azerbaijan when I was there in September, where you just have a lady sitting there, and I desperately needed to go to the toilet, but I didn't have any of the local coins. And uh, she didn't understand me. Eventually, I went, I found a policeman, and I said to him, he spoke English a little bit, I said, here's my situation. The policeman in the train station in Baku, Azerbaijan, paid for me to go to the toilet. Now, let's make Vancouver that kind of civil society. All right. Sounds good. Michael, thank you so much. Pleasure having you back on the show today. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye.